In the 19th century, cholera tore across the world, infecting and killing millions of people. And for decades, the disease seemed impossible to stop. But then, in 1854, during the third and deadliest wave of the cholera pandemic, a British physician named John Snow went door-to-door in a neighborhood in London in an effort to help stem the disease. He traced the infections to contaminated water from a public well and persuaded the city to remove the pump handle. Infections dropped, and authorities began to invest in better sanitation and public health to prevent future outbreaks. John Snow is considered by many experts to be one of the fathers of epidemiology and public health. Public health addresses societal well-being, and by doing so, the health of individuals in a population can be improved through innovation and the creation of better health standards. Over the past 200 years, health systems around the world have established a track record for identifying large-scale challenges such as cholera, improving care for the sick through infrastructure, training countless people to be better clinicians, and scaling up interventions that work for people who are sick. Compared to life before 1800, these examples show that public health works. But today's public health approach is far from perfect. The death toll continues to rise as a cholera epidemic sweeps across a number of West African countries. Aid agencies are Diabetes has today worldwide epidemic Finalmente, la Organización Mundial de la Salud declaró la propagación del nuevo coronavirus como una pandemia. Esto después de que el número de Many people in healthcare, including me, believe there's a better way: personalized public health. As we learned in the last episode, personalized health promises to improve outcomes by using data and technology to tailor interventions, both prevention and sick care, for the individuals who need them. And a critical question as we look at the future of healthcare is, can we bring together personalized health with public health? This is Future Proofing Healthcare, a podcast that explores how the choices we make today impact the healthcare of tomorrow. I'm your host, Tony Estrella. And in this episode, we're going to dive into the debate about whether personalized public health is possible. Spoiler alert, I believe it is. Why do I think this? Well, in this episode, you'll hear about three examples from around the world where personalized public health is already becoming reality. We'll also speak with two experts, Jeremy Lim and John Sargent. Their work affecting various health systems around the world helps us understand whether personalized public health is possible. There are a few fundamental questions policymakers ask about how to achieve personalized public health. How do we introduce innovation without immediately increasing costs? Will personalized health exacerbate inequalities, and what impact will it have on healthcare delivery? And can we improve outcomes for conditions that affect large populations? Policymakers in Singapore are wrestling with these questions right now. Singapore is widely considered one of the most advanced countries for personalized health in the world, and is the first example where personalized public health is becoming reality. Singapore is pursuing a 10-year national precision medicine strategy to bring personalized health to the entire population, improve public health outcomes, and target preventative and sick care. 
In April 2021, phase two of the initiative was launched, which will analyze genomic information from thousands of citizens and begin to implement personalized health in clinical practice. To learn more, I spoke with Jeremy Lim, author of the Singapore Healthcare System and a member of the Future Proofing Healthcare Advisory Board. My name is Jeremy Lim. I'm the lead for global health and I lead the precision public health track within the National University of Singapore. Jeremy is also the CEO and co-founder of Amelie, the first precision gut microbiome company in Southeast Asia. He is widely respected throughout the region for his expertise in healthcare and public policy. Like most of my medical school classmates, I entered medical school thinking I was going to practice medicine. However, I was taking a month off every year to volunteer in medical missions across the region, in Cambodia, in Vietnam, in Laos. And over time, my interest broadened beyond surgery to include public health and health systems. After a couple of years of mucking around in other people's countries without any formal training, I decided I had to be properly trained. And so I went off to the US to do graduate studies in what is today called global health. Over the last 20 years, I've been transitioning into policy and management. So how should public health care for a population? Every health system seeks to achieve three objectives, the highest quality health possible at the lowest possible cost and to ensure that healthcare is accessible universally. These three core objectives, quality, affordability, and accessibility, are referred to as the Iron Triangle of Healthcare, a concept developed by American physician William Kissick to illustrate the trade-offs that many people believe are inherent in healthcare. For example, if a health system is high quality and widely accessible, it's assumed that it can't also be low cost. Technology is finally allowing us to break out of this iron triangle. If we use data well, very high quality data in real time at the population level, we can deploy resources in much better ways. And fundamentally, precision public health is about allocating very scarce resources. Policymakers are keenly aware that within healthcare, resources are scarce. And as Jeremy shares, the introduction of a new program to address a population-level change is not easy. These are wicked, complex, adaptive issues, and so we need multifaceted solutions. And that's where the data helps us to see the linkages and to target populations much more effectively. For example, if we look at Singapore, do we have a national smoking problem? Actually, we don't. Once we start to hone down into segments of the population, we then realize that smoking is associated with certain ethnic groups. It's associated with economic disadvantage. And the data looked at collectively will also allow us not just to pinpoint where to best channel resources, but also to develop a theory of change so that we can not only work on the challenge that is at hand, but also move upstream to look at the social or the commercial determinants of health. The drivers of whether we have good or bad health is influenced by factors from two broad categories, non-medical, such as culture, socioeconomic status, and geography, and medical determinants, which are informed by our unique genetic makeup and physiology. Jeremy explains more. 
we as human beings are much more than just our genetics. We're the sum total of our genetics, the environment that we interact with, and the personal choices around behavior and lifestyle that we make. So precision medicine is really the sum total of all of these. Collecting and using all this medical and non-medical data can take a lot of money and resources. Despite the fact that some technology costs have come down, such as those in genomic sequencing, policymakers are concerned that personalized interventions may be too costly to offer to everyone through public health systems. Jeremy helps enlighten us on whether this concern is fact or fiction. Fiction. There is investment upfront, but once we get the bugs out of the system, the running cost becomes very, very low. I cannot overemphasize this enough. Good care is less expensive than bad care. To borrow a manufacturing mantra, do it right, do it once, and everyone wins. Future-proofing healthcare's Asia-Pacific Personalized Health Index places Singapore as number one in the region across many measures, including health information and personalized technologies. Jeremy provided us with his view on why this country of 5.5 million people is a global leader in healthcare. I think Singapore recognized very early on that as a small country dependent on human capital and the full harnessing of human capital, health becomes important. I think increasingly Singapore seeing the health system not just as something that is good in and of itself, it's a strategic asset for bringing the best and brightest to Singapore and for our own citizens to realize their fullest potential. This was conceived in pre-pandemic times, and I think that COVID-19 illustrated just how sound this thesis is. However, I do recognize that for us living here in Asia, healthcare is very gated, and in many countries where the government is less well-resourced, citizens are dependent on the private sector to bring in innovation. And based on Singapore's example, what advice would you give to other policymakers around the world to help them design better healthcare systems? Invest in people. They are the decision makers. And if we invest, our people will figure out what's the right thing to do for our own countries. Because healthcare will always be dynamic and struggle with finite resources and infinite demand. Only the people working with data can figure out what is the right way forward for any given country. Aside from investing in human capital, how else can public health systems start to move towards personalized public health? Tony, can I just preamble by saying that good healthcare is not just about biology, it's about behavior. And to nudge behaviors in the right direction, we need to have data. Any primary care system that uses data meaningfully can potentially be a much stronger system. I think that a very powerful model that's starting to emerge is primary care built around teams rather than individual doctors. Doctors tend to be prescriptive and in this day and age, that's not what's needed to be effective. If we had data profiles of each patient and what motivators they would respond to, we can then practice in a team-based model where the doctor focuses on the medical aspects and the nurses, the health coaches would then provide that continuity of care and look at the social dimensions that influence behavior. In other words, data and technology not only make personalized health interventions more accessible, but they can change the delivery of care itself. The team-based model Jeremy describes helps clinicians address both medical and non-medical factors in keeping people healthy. This brings us to our second example. In Rwanda, 
A technology company called Babylon Health is using artificial intelligence to maximize limited healthcare resources and enable clinicians to practice in a more efficient team-based model. One of the many casualties of civil war and genocide in Rwanda was its health system. Infrastructure was destroyed, and more than 80% of the country's health professionals were killed or forced to flee. In the years after the conflict, the Rwandan government set out a recovery plan and prioritized healthcare and health equity. Today, Rwanda is widely considered a success story as health outcomes have improved dramatically. However, most health systems are concentrated around the capital of Kigali. And a few years ago, there were only about 1,300 physicians for an entire population of 12 million people. This is where Babel comes in. Babel is a mobile app that was launched in 2016 by Babylon, the Rwandan Ministry of Health, and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It uses artificial intelligence to triage medical problems and alleviate pressure on Rwanda's doctors and clinics. A user enters their symptoms, and if the AI-powered software recognizes a simple or common medical condition, the app will recommend treatment options. Otherwise, users are connected to a physician for teleconsultation. Users can also receive prescriptions, get referrals, and access clinical records. Now, 30% of the population use Babel, and over 1 million consultations have been conducted. The use of Babel has also created 300 jobs in digital health across Rwanda. In early 2020, Babylon Health signed a 10-year contract with the Rwandan government to expand its services and help digitize the country's health system. Electronic medical records are expected to improve record-keeping throughout the country, reduce healthcare costs, and improve patient outcomes. AI is expensive technology, but in Rwanda, it is being successfully applied at the public health level to identify problems early on, streamline care delivery, and get the right treatments to the right people. Critics of Babylon and other AI solutions question the viability for this technology to support broader medical interventions or integrate into public health systems. As a result, Babylon's founder, Dr. Ali Parsa, is both optimistic about the future, but realistic in the complexity of its deployment. He says, we're in day one. AI will utterly outperform our wildest imaginations in years to come and utterly disappoint us in the short term. We'll stay in Africa for our third example of personalized public health. Starting in the 1980s, HIV reached epidemic levels across the continent. To learn more about how data and technology were used to address this public health challenge, I sought out John Sargent, an expert in public policy and technology. A physician by training and a consultant by practice, John has been working to improve public health delivery and outcomes for decades, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. In college, I started realizing that there's a lot more to healthcare than just being a doctor. I spent a summer with the Red Cross in Sierra Leone. It was undergoing a brutal civil war, and I was assigned to a remote refugee camp, and we had no running water, no electricity, not enough doctors, nurses, medicine, but I could walk outside the gates of the refugee camp and I could buy Coca-Cola beer if I wanted to. I don't smoke, but if you want to buy cigarettes, you could do that. That kick-started the journey I've been on for the last 30 years. These systems, these businesses that distribute products, what are they doing right? What can we learn from them and how do we apply that to healthcare? 
John's observation about the supply chains for products like Coca-Cola inspired him to view the challenges of public health in a unique way. The way we think about healthcare in general is it's supply and demand. The goal of public health is to help as many people as possible with the resources that you have. And what helps Coca-Cola know their market and meet customer demand efficiently? Technology and data. The digitization of the beverage industry, and really all industries, is known as the fourth industrial revolution. And here's how it applies to healthcare. Every aspect and facet of our life will change because of what's happening in the fourth industrial revolution. The health systems that figure out how to be innovative and how to adapt those technologies quickly are the ones that are going to win. Technology and data will give public health more tools to deliver personalized health at the population level and deliver the promise of personalized public health. John has learned this over the past 20 years through his experiences at a social enterprise which he co-founded. The mission of Broadreach is to work with health systems so they can use their limited resources to help as many people as possible. With the advent of cloud computing, we could better understand what was happening in a health system and we could empower the health system to do more through the use of AI and data. Vantage was developed by Broadreach in partnership with Microsoft. This type of platform performs three broad functions. First, data is collected from a variety of sources such as lab data, providers' daily routines, patient information, and non-healthcare information. In some cases, paper-based data is also converted into digital format. The primary innovation and the heart of this engine is artificial intelligence, which reviews this data and creates unique insights. The last stage of this platform is to offer recommendations for improvement and change. Here's how John leveraged technology to help health systems stem the growth of HIV in Africa. Ugu District in the province of KwaZulu-Natal in South Africa is ground zero for the HIV pandemic. Upwards of 37, 38% of the adult population was thought to be HIV positive, and the health system was completely overwhelmed. Within seven or eight years, we were able to work with the public health system to get the epidemic under control. Today, we can track in every single clinic, every single day, how many people are being tested, how many people are being put on treatment, and who's coming back for their medicines. And we know every doctor and nurse, we can then provide prescriptive recommendations to say, hey, it looks like you might need to focus more resources here, you might need to do this, this, and this, and here's the workflow to actually do that. And what can this example teach us about the future of precision public health? Precision Public Health. It's about how do we use the tools that we have available today to do a better job managing the health of a population. Now, that's a really rosy picture because we know that all these new techniques are incredibly expensive. However, the great thing about technology is that it gets cheaper over time and it becomes more ubiquitous. And so I think that's what we have going for us in public health. The insights provided from data and technology has improved the effectiveness of policymakers to slow the HIV pandemic across Africa. In summary, public health and personalized health are completely compatible. They are not mutually exclusive ideas. This is the same conclusion Jeremy Lim arrived at earlier in the episode. So given the progress we've already made in scaling these expensive solutions, what can we expect personalized public health to look like in the coming years? 10 to 15 years from now, I think there's going to be two really big trends. First, we're going to shift away from sick care to truly health care. We're going to be able to predict and prevent diseases from ever becoming diseases. 
The second one is a shift in where healthcare is actually delivered. We sit on an old 1950s model, two doctors, four nurses to X thousand number of patients, and you wait till you get sick to show up. But John is careful to add that progress towards personalized public health will not be evenly distributed because not all countries are starting from the same place. In the U.S., into the next 24 months, there'll be a lot more progress towards that 10 to 15 year vision in Sub-Saharan Africa. I don't think there will be a lot of change in 24 months towards that vision, maybe in five years, eight years. Things like geographic access will be solved through telehealth and drones. For example, Avalon Health in Rwanda. There are bits and pieces of the solution for the future, but nobody has yet put it all together. I think over time, those pieces will start getting put together. And ultimately, there will be an economic case, especially for resource poor settings, to shift in that direction because you can manage people a lot more effectively remotely and with technology than you can in maintaining lots of infrastructure and lots of doctors and nurses. It will take time for health systems to trust and adopt new technology. John adds, the countries must also have regulatory frameworks in place to deploy new solutions safely and effectively across the population. The introduction of data into how public health systems manage their operations is an ongoing journey. The challenge today is that it's hard to shift and change a massive organization and move it into a new direction. Any technology has its early pioneers before it gets to mass adoption. And I think it's the same exact thing with data and public health. The way we approached it with HIV was to find champions who early on are very dedicated. But it's not just about using the technology and defining new models of care. The regulatory frameworks in many of these countries haven't kept up with what's happening in data. The examples from Singapore, Rwanda, and South Africa show us that data and technology is making personalized public health a reality today. And if we look at the components of personalized health, such as targeted interventions, it is true that some solutions involve expensive, high-end technology testing. But with the right approach, public health, which involves low-cost mass interventions given to entire populations, can be enhanced in a cost-efficient manner. Public health and personalized health are not mutually exclusive. Together, they are the way forward for disease prevention and control, improving health outcomes, and creating a path towards health equity worldwide. This is the Future Proofing Healthcare podcast, where we are exploring how the choices we make today impact the healthcare of tomorrow. Join us in our next episode as we discuss a topic which is central to any health policy for personalized health, the challenges of data. Many thanks to my guests, Jeremy Lim and John Sargent, for their time and insights. You can find more information about Future Proofing Healthcare at futureproofinghealthcare.com, including a full list of sources used in developing this episode. To listen, subscribe, and review our episodes, head to your favorite podcast player. This show is written, researched, and produced by Taliosa, Vision Based Media, and Roche. Additional research and writing was done by Michaela Arneson. Sound design was by Ivan Yurich. And until next time, I'm Tony Estrella, and thank you for listening.